right, welcome back. This is After the End of History. It's June 22nd, 2021. This is episode number 23. Um, we're coming back to Trade Wars or Class Wars by Pettis and Klein. And it's been a couple weeks since we talked about this one. But the intent with this episode is to go through the rest of the book where we left off before. So we're picking up with chapters 2 through 4 tonight and really digging into China as that's been a point of discussion for us on the last few episodes. If you uh, notice that we skipped over episodes 21 and 22, that's because they're bonus episodes. And one thing that we've been doing lately is releasing bonus episodes for our loyal subscribers, um, who we want to thank tonight. So we have a few new subscribers, which, uh, you know, who we're really grateful for. Um, you know, it keeps, keeps the lights on over here, helps us keep going and, and stay focused. But big shout out to Becca and Kristen, David, Hamza, and Adam, who have become subscribers since our last episode came out. Um, thank you all so much. And if you're interested in becoming a subscriber yourself, getting access to those bonus episodes, and at the higher tiers actually becoming something like producers with us and, and talking about books that we should keep under discussion, topics that we should keep in focus, um, please, by all means, go to patreon.com slash afterhistory and become a subscriber. This episode will go up free for everybody, um, as most of our book reviews will. Um, but in the future, as we do bonus episodes on current events and special topics based on our newsletter, they'll be for subscribers only. So give us a look there. And with that, Mario, how are you doing, man? I'm doing pretty good. Um, you know, just keeping it real. Keeping it realist. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what did we talk about last time and, and how are we going to connect the dots to tonight's discussion? Well, last time we talked about theories of trade, um, basically from Adam Smith till today, and um, how we have to sort of amend or change and radicalize those some of those understandings in the context of globalization. Mm -hmm. And we also talked about the way that the dispersal of trade and intermediate um, goods in con under conditions of globalization has not only created this just, you know, tremendous amount of economic interdependence, but also um, the conditions for uh, firms to use loopholes and tax avoidance as um, major parts of their business strategies. Schemes. And schemes, indeed. And um, how, you know, this, this world is one of, you know, both economic integration, but also something that promotes and creates um, by necessity, tremendous amounts of economic inequality. So putting together the, the, the ways in which this period of, you know, sort of post-Cold War globalization is on the one hand a positive story of global growth, of global integration, of, um, you know, the spread of capital and technology around the world, while also a story of um, um, deep uh, economic inequality. And um, ultimately, as this book is going to, you know, push us towards um, – chances or um, reasons for there to be clashes between nations as those inequalities drive um, imbalances and, as the title suggests, trade wars. That's right. Yeah, and, and one thing that we'll get into tonight is uh, specifically how some of those models from hi the history of economics from Ricardo to Adam Smith are being challenged in a lot of ways by um, some of the history of the development of financialization around the world. Um, specifically around how the the pursuit of profit or investment for profit often isn't the driver of trade. In fact, um, as, as we'll see as we go through the, the second chapter of this book, what often drives trade 
is pure speculative capital, the creation of credit, the creation of money and new structures for investing in markets that wouldn't otherwise be connected to, um, you know, the core um, of capital in the developed world. And, and that can be for better, and it's often for worse, uh, for developing countries. So it's a picture that I think they paint particularly well um, from, you know, the, the 19th century on, from the 1820s and the 1830s into the, uh, you know, the, the Great Recession of 2008. So, yeah. so that's, that's one of the big stories that we have to talk about tonight, how Pettis and Klein frame their, uh, their arguments, basically a Keynesian argument for higher consumption to balance trade in the international system, how they frame that within the history of, of, of capitalist economics from the 19th century onwards. Yeah, and we're and they they do a pretty elaborate job of it because they, you know, they tell the story of not only the um, you know credit booms and cycles of lending throughout Latin America in the nineteenth early nineteenth century, um, and British American financial relations, but various other European countries. So we're going to basically pick and choose a couple sort of exemplary cases um, and take us through their chapter two and chapter three. And then hopefully, you know, by the end of this episode, be able to get a little bit into um, their sort of historical sketch of the post-1978 um, Deng Xiaoping era of a kind of new development model in China. And, you know, hopefully that can put us in a good position to have a more informed discussion of economic inequality in China and also the nature of the economic tensions between the U.S. and China or, or China and the rest of the world. That's right. One thing I like about this book is, um, you know, we've gone back to it a number of times. It's really had staying power with us. We've we've read it, we've reread it, and one thing I noticed is that it it often goes from the general um, on a on an ep- economic theory or a principle in classical economics, and then drills in to specifics of the real world and challenges those classical economic models. So we talked about Ricardo, we talked about Smith, we talked about comparative advantage, and then we talked about how, in specific, if you look at the United States, it's distorted. these economic models in such a way as to cause these trade imbalances by developing these schemes, as you said, for distorting how financial flows actually work. They can conceal so much of that. And and likewise, they have a a very general model on the way that trade follows finance. And then they drill into the specifics in the real world of how that that classical model, model of trade and finance is challenged by reality. So as we move into chapter two, which which I believe is called um, Mario, let's remind me. <laughs> the growth of global finance. Okay, there you go. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, so very general, the growth of, of global finance. Um, they, they, they pose a couple of general hypotheses. One is trade is driven by rational investment. And that makes perfect sense. If you're going to put your money somewhere, you expect to get a return on your investment. You look for those places where you're going to have a high profit. And that's where capitalists will send their money to exploit labor, to bring back high profits. Um, and that, and that's probably like how most people think of you know who have no uh, uncritical relation to f- capitalism think that's what finance does right yeah it converts and, savings into investments right. and and it does it in the most efficient way possible by allocating capital efficiently right and and you know ultimately that that is what it does right I mean I think that's true as far as it goes but the reality is that you know the, the I'll, I'll quote them because i think it's it's a nice quote here they say yet the history of the past several hundred years is replete with synchronized credit cycles not in other words purely random distributions of investment where there are good profitable returns 
at stake. So if you would expect this to be a situation where you could invest and you and you would think that your money is going to bring back the most returns on profit, that could be anywhere. It could be perfectly random at any particular time in history or place where a particular good is being made. But they're saying it's actually synchronized and it's pretty concentrated. History will show, uh, in particular with the British Empire and later in, you know, in cases like the EU and you look at cross-border financial flows in the EU, mm-hmm. what's determining financial outflows isn't so much the potential for profit as it is purely this creation of a new structure of, of money creation and creating speculative bubbles that some capitalists will make, you know, uh, you know, they'll go gangbusters over, you know, hand over fist and in returning profit. But it has a downside, which is as soon as that money gets sucked up, those countries are at risk of going bankrupt, those developing countries. So they're juxtaposing the hypothesis with the reality, I think, is is very powerful throughout this book. But we should start from the top, which is, you know, there are three models of the link between trade and finance, right? The first is comparative advantage. Ricardian which, which idea, we, right? This you Ricardian know, idea. You sell, you sell textiles. I can sell, you know, wine. It's the England Portugal idea, right? And that right. Um, you're going to take it. You're going to, you know, both specialize and it benefits both of you, right? That's right. Yeah, which is which is when it does work, it works well. You know, your your trading partner has something you don't have. You can benefit from that, and likewise, and. The system is set up in such a way, geography, the facts of geography are such that it will be beneficial, but it's not how it always works. And capitalism's anarchy and irrational logic often works against that. Plus, you'd rather, plus you'd rather be uh, making textiles than just growing wine. In right, most cases, yeah, right? exactly, because of, because of the the level of profitability and and, yeah, techno- and, and technology. The, yeah, exactly. And then, and then second, what we were speaking about before, one, one way that there's a link between trade and finance is rational investment or profit seeking, which we went on, um, already to talk about. And then third, the, the, you can think about it in terms of today's world where you see a massive scale of international finance. And this really is the reality where you see the credit creation and a bust boom cycle, which we'll get into detail from their history. So it's really this, it's this latter third model that they say is the truest um, and the one that economic history bears out um, with facts. And then they say large changes in the financial account were always accompanied by equal and opposite shifts in the trade account. So in other words, these financial outflows from the capitalist core led to trade deficits or surpluses um, depending on the direction that those outflows were going. Yeah. And I think that the reason why I mean, you can really read this book without Without reading chapter two, I think in a lot of ways, if you just wanted to be to be up to date on what's going on with you know the advanced capitalist world between China, Germany, and the United States, but I think one of the reasons why they tell this story throughout the 19th century is that the 19th century is really the first era of globalization, and so they want to give an account that um, shows how finance basically in a lot of ways determined the structure of trade um, in that period. And here's one of the things they say. Although debt, equity, and insurance have been in existence for a long time, the massive scale of international finance today is a recent phenomenon. As recently as 1855, the total value of cross-border financial claims was just 16% of one year of global output. Then, by 1870, it was 94% of global output. Today, the value of cross-border claims, financial claims on wealth, um, totals 400% of global output. So the the role of finance expands throughout these different phases of globalization, and that you could say that you know this somewhat 
reader or listeners may know of um, this book by Arrighi called The Long, 20, the Long 20th Century, uh-huh. which is a sort of an account of the way that different phases of capital accumulation um, as they've developed since the 19th, well, since um, really the origins of um, capitalism in Europe and the interstate system in modern Europe have um, been attended by these concentrations of finance with state power as the state, you know, sort of is able to not only expand commercially, but also create, um, you know, different territorial arrangements for accumulation. And you could say there's a, there's a similar story that has to be, that has to be understood about um, finance today, that it's, it's playing this sort of increasingly outsized role in um, facilitating trade and, and as we'll discover in some ways, creating these imbalances. Yeah, so just to, to back up for a second, I mean, somebody might have caught those numbers and gone, well, how the hell can you have, uh, you know, a, a, an amount of investment cross-border that's higher by 4x the global output? So how would you explain that to somebody? It goes from 16%, 94%. Now we're talking about outpacing the actual existing output of the globe by four times. And that's what the value of all of this trade cross-border represents. How do you explain that to somebody? Debt, basically. I mean, Debt. It's a gigantic credit debt. card. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And that's really the story that we're going to go through here from the 1820s onwards to today, even when we look into – to, and it's relevant. We look into the question of debt in China today and how that may be a concern. We won't raise it as some kind of – you know, um, we're, we're not going to say there's a crisis in, in China's economics that is going to lead to some disaster or something. But the question of debt, financing – production and development through debt has real consequences, um, not just on the balance sheet, right, and economic health, but it has has proved to have an impact on the interstate uh, uh, system and rivalries between states. Um, and those rivalries between states have even driven these imbalances. So there's this kind of, um, you know, this this action reaction of of the 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 credit system, uh, the, the financialization of the system. And the development of rivalries within the interstate order, and vice versa. So I think I think it's important. I mean, this stuff might seem a little wonky and kind of abstracted from the overall picture, but it's grounded. It, they're grounding their their arguments in history, um, and, and it makes it very difficult to 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 argue with to the contrary. Mm-hmm. So I guess the next thing we should just we should talk about is their narration or scheme for describing the um, the British American relationship in terms of America being a kind of high-wage growth model of this sort of, along the lines of this sort of Hamiltonian scheme of um, high tariffs and creating conditions for um, British um, investment into higher-valued capital, the effects that has on the um, expansion West, and you know, we'll, go, we'll go from there, right? Yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that idea. Why, so, so uh, yeah, well, why don't you do that, Mario? <laughs> well, so the first thing to take note of is, you know, Britain was the leading capitalist nation in the you know, late 18th and, early, and throughout the 19th century. And so just think of it this way as the profits from British manufacturing get reshuffled um, into financial investments. They went to the, in one case, to Latin America, um, lending states money, oftentimes according to what we described earlier as this sort of credit boom cycle, um, creating extreme excesses and including, you know, sort of charlatans creating 
countries in order to um, capture um, um, to capture loans and dude, you know, you're trade. you're gonna talk about Gregor McGregor already? I was gonna do Gregor yeah. McGregor. <laughs> Okay, we'll tease him. We'll, we'll what, tease was his, what was the name of his country? Poye. Poyais? Yeah, Poye, yeah. Poye or Poye, yeah. I don't know, yeah. But, but yeah, you're right. So, yeah, go on. I'm sorry. I, but, so that, but, yeah, but call the man by his name, Gregor McGregor. Gregor McGregor of the, of the McGregor clan. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, so there are those kind of excesses, and you could say that's a, a part of the, um, the story of um, – you know, British imperialism in Latin America and the context in which the Monroe Doctrine is promulgated in order to begin to eke out a position in Latin America for the United States, uh-huh. for them to, you know, become the the, um, the um, loner of last resort and, and take over basically that role of um, funding governments and mopping up the money with a, with a big stick and when Theodore Roosevelt becomes president. But not to go too far ahead of ourselves, there was also a special relationship between the British and the Americans. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the story is, I mean, I, I know we're trying to telescope it a bit, but it, it was kind of like the, the second act of this, uh, this model in the 1830s that you have this relationship between the British and the Americans, the British lending uh, at very high, uh, you know, high volume to the Americans who used it in turn for their own industrial development. But this was kind of the, the reprise of an earlier lending bonanza in the 1820s to Latin America, like you said. Um, and, and before you move on to America, I just want to, I just want to mention one of the interesting things about this, um, because, it, because it's a recurring fact is that it, it was, you know, one of the, uh, windfalls, I guess you would say that the British had experienced beyond just the exploitation of their own working class and surpluses that that were used for investment around the world. They received a 700 million franc indemnity from France after uh, be, you know being victorious in the Napoleonic Wars. Um, so this this created a, a gigantic influx of uh, of money essentially that they they didn't use at home for the purposes of high wages for their own working class. They as we said with J. A. Hobson, there's a story here of financialization where it goes abroad and. And Latin America was both the, the the beneficiary in a soft sense, and really the victim uh, of the the creation of credit. Because as soon as that lending boom uh, ended, basically every Latin American borrower had defaulted. Um, and and as you were saying, Gregor McGregor, you know, you have these charlatans and con artists who created their own countries out of thin air so they can get a couple bucks, well, a yeah. couple bucks, like hundreds of thousands of pounds to, to, uh, to, I don't know what Gregor McGregor was doing with it, but, but it was, it was a total bonanza. So, so, so this, you know, as you go into the American story here, the only difference really is that we're looking at the relationship between, um, Britain and America primarily versus Britain and, and Latin American countries, which were really the focus of this investment. So, so sorry, I, I just wanted to, to add that additional context because this is the way that Pettis and Klein go through it. They talk about, you know, it, it's sort of periodized this way, you know, 1820s, bust and, you know, boom and bust. And then we get to the 1830s and, and it's, it's the same story, except America was able to flip the, the investment for their advantage and become a, you know, hegemonic power eventually. Right. Um, and so the British are also investing in um, the United States. Um, they're responding to, a, you know, these reports of feverish um, economic activity um, and skyrocketing markets in the United States. Money pours into railroads, canals, um, 
And there's also a special relationship too, right, of um, southern cotton producers and the um, commercial business cycle in Britain itself. Right. That's right. very, you know, symbi- symbiotic. Um, even through the through the Civil War itself, there's a major, you know, British um, commercial interest in supporting the the South, even though Britain doesn't do it officially. And so that um, symbiotic relationship, you know, you could say punctuates or um, or sets the rhythm for um, American development from, you know, the 1820s to, to the end of the Civil War. And also not only that infrastructural inve- investment into railroads and canals, um, but also the, that source of lending helps to create a um, basically a real estate boom that Jackson um, tries to... Um, halt with the species circular, basically, by yeah. taking certain paper money out of circulation. That causes in itself its own crisis, right? It pissed a lot of people off in Europe, too. I mean, these high savers who were like, okay, look at this great opportunity in the U.S., right? Let's throw our money at um, buying up public lands and invest in, in this emerging economy. And um, Jackson basically says, okay, we're not going to sell public lands anymore with paper money. You can only do it with gold and silver. And that, that became uh, kind of a panic, panicky situation for a lot of people. Pettis and Klein mentioned, by the way, if listeners, um, c- you know, catch what they're talking about here, they said this drove, this anger from Europe drove quite a bit of literature at the time. Um, I don't know what they're referring to, but, but there are apparently diatribes in, in fiction from this period that, that was uh, a direct result of this lending uh, bonanza drying up. So if anybody's listening and knows what they're talking about, we'd love to hear you. Um, so let's move up. So then, of course, there's a civil war. And as everybody knows, after the civil war, is a, there's a huge economic takeoff for the United States as this, you know, um, you know, sort of railroad and sort of commercial agricultural economic model takes off and industrialization sort of begins in the United States in, in full. Uh-huh. This is, the, you could say, the, the, the era of America's, um, you know, full um, industrial takeoff and also under still incubated under high tariff conditions that won't basically be removed until, you know, the early 20th century. They also describe um, another set of lending conditions that happened after the um, Franco-Prussian War and creates right. conditions again of French um, reparations <laughs> or indemnities that create the, you know, so it's this huge influx of, of you know, of gold or, or um, of um, money that serves the basis for another lending boom, right? Yeah, and the interesting thing about this period is now um, the, the world kind of, you know, sees a number of additional contenders in, the, in this, this financial order, right, where it was primarily the British lending money to uh, faraway markets in Latin America or to the United States. Now we see Br- Britain is still obviously at the center of this as a financial hub, you know, world financial hub, the, you know, the, 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 the largest capitalist nation in the world at the time, um, being, you know, being rivaled by the United States by some measures, maybe even surpassed. I, I don't know exactly. But at this point, Paris is starting to rival London for sure in the lending market. And Germany even has an interesting word for the period, which is, I mean, you can you can pronounce it, but Grunderzeit, which is the yeah. founder's error. So, um, so we have a number of other contenders in the market now, and the U.S. is even innovating in its own way with with financialization for the domestic market, which which again has another uh, you know interesting tie to the Civil War. Sam and P. Chase, um, you know, creates this 
this model of middle class lending. You know, anybody, you know, ordinary working family could now support uh, the northern war effort against the slaveocracy by buying bonds. And and so you can see this this model of financialization really taking off in the industrial uh, the, the the developed world uh, in Western Europe and the United States and and becomes kind of a lasting feature of capitalism from that moment on. I don't know how much more you want to say about this period, Mario, but in all of these cases we're talking about, eventually this the, this booming period leads to a bust. Um, you know, the there were there were defaults to such an extent. In Latin America in, in 1873, I think, um, that Chile, for example, had to liquidate its entire banking system and was it was exhausted entirely of its gold. And people in America can relate to sort of the, anybody who knows a little bit of American you know, economic history in the late uh, 1870s or in the 1870s, there's a, um, you know, a crash due to um, railroad speculation. Right. And that leads to a depression here in the United States. And it's not, and it's not really until the 1890s that there's like a real recovery. Yeah, and I mean, it it really it's striking. Um, you know, we can, we can talk about this kind of periodization of it in an abstract way, and talk about superabundance of cash as the result of wars. You know, the Prussian, mm-hmm. uh, the Franco-Prussian War in 1870-71. But this really, we shouldn't talk about it so abstractly. I mean, you can see it. It really occurs to you that the the beneficiary, truly the beneficiary of this model becomes a handful of what would become imperialist nations. And this is sort of the, you know, the stepping stones of that model, right? And then the rest of the world where, where these outflows are going, with the, the main exception being the United States, which was able to use this to their benefit for industrial development, right? The rest of the world is really screwed over because of this and, and kept in a backward state of industrial development as a result. Yeah, and one of the points they make is that it's um, the United States... Um, unlike many of these other countries, has a high-wage um, growth model, which was, you know, sustained by the fact that, you know, in the United States, the United States was still moving west, and so workers had the advantage to um, always be able to find better conditions if they moved west or find land, which put employers in the position of having to hire, hire workers at comparatively high wages than in, 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 um, in Europe. And so, too, also, European immigrants were coming with skills that probably weren't in place or aren't in the workforce in much of Latin America. So you have this relatively high trained um, and, um, you know, enthusiastic or willing workforce in America that, um, you know, has very favorable conditions while also receiving um, investments from the most advanced capitalist country in Europe being England. Yeah, yeah. There, there are a couple of other stories that they tell from economic history to to frame this argument about how trade follows finance and often to detrimental ends. Uh, th- well, did you want to talk about the 2008 recession in, in these terms or? Uh, yeah. I mean, um, so basically, you know, to make a long story short and get through the end of this chapter, um, they, you know, um, end on the 2008 recession in which, um, you know, many of us are probably aware that, you um, Excessive lending in the um, subprime mortgage market led to the extending of loans to um, people who couldn't afford it and just a total reduction of quality of loans that spread risk throughout the system and throughout the commercial banking system that put everybody, not only American banks, investment banks and commercial banks, but European and Chinese banks um, sort of on the docket 
and required the United States to make huge, gigantic rescue efforts. And one of the most important things they they you know recognize, along with um, Adam Tooze, is the role that the United States played in, um, or the, rather, the Federal Reserve played in um, extending emergency loans to banks outside the United States, especially to the Eurobank swap lines, which you know comprised a huge part of um, yeah you know those who were in the red. Um, from the uh, 2008 crisis or from the um, subprime mortgage lending crisis. And, you know, later on, we'll be able to, we'll talk a little bit about all of Germany's, um, how, how overextended and how poorly structured and um, strategized Germany's investment in this whole period, basically from the 90s to, you know, 2008 Um that, that that was that they that if they had invested a lot of that um, a lot of their savings in their own country they would have had a higher rate of return than what they invested in in America. But, yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, that's 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 a really interesting point. Um, couple couple of things about the two thousand eight recession that I learned reading this is um, the 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 Deutsche Bank um, was one of the main underwriters of the subprime mortgage uh, mm-hmm. phenomenon, right? Uh, and and. And and I say Maine in in a in a major way, right? So the the investment was larger than Goldman Sachs, uh, Bank of America, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, um, and they mentioned Countrywide as well. I don't remember what Countrywide is, but I assume it's a big bank. But you, you'll recognize some of those other names. But um, it was a surprise to me that a European bank had greater investments in the subprime mortgage um, fallout eventually than than many American banks. And and the other thing you have to remember about this is that after the panic, um, I, I was not surprised to learn that there were emergency loans that went to banks outside the United States. But their point is that most of those funds went to banks outside the United States. So we're talking about this weird phenomenon in financialization where European banks were essentially American banks in a real sense. So some goofy stuff comes out of this, but the lesson um, well that again, that's, that's how hegemony works. You know, I mean, ah, that's true, how the United right. States kept the the, the Europeans um, close. Yeah, yeah, true, true, and and yeah. So so that's their point. Is I mean, you have this uh, as another great lesson of how these structural changes, just purely d- definitions of you know new definitions of how money is created and the rules for money being um, spread around the world. How how these structural changes can lead to rapid credit expansion. Um, and the risks that come with it. And to them, it's been in, in the history of economics, um, it has not been an even road to progress. It's been pretty bumpy and in large part detrimental to many countries on the receiving end. And so their third chapter is um, saving investment and imbalances. So it's basically a story of how different countries have different developmental models um, and um, different, um, we'd say, uh, and also um, degrees or levels of inequality. And those shape the way that countries consume, spend, save, and invest. And so... There are countries that consume more than they produce, countries like the United States, which operate on current account deficits. And um, there, are sa- there are countries that um, consume less than they, than they produce. And, those are con- and that's a country, say, like China, in which there's a, um, a current account surplus. 
and a trade surplus. And sometimes these imbalances can be relatively sym- sym- symbiotic and can um, you know, not lead to problems. But um, at a certain point, there comes a recognition that the inequality, say, created in China, in which there's a model of keeping household spending down so that money can find its way to further investment to um, continue to develop the manufacturing sector of the country, ends up leading to a glut of products to That's other right. to other countries, such that those countries, the United States, loses the ability to continue to sustain employment and continue to sustain further investment in its own in its own economy and and further develop the country. Now, the difference between say this sort of story throughout different phases of um, capitalist economic history is that now we're reaching a point of kind of um, convergence in which a country like the United States is, you know, already one of the most advanced capitalist countries in the world. So the drying up of investment opportunities in a country like the United States has an indication of it's already having reached a maturity. I mean, obviously there could be more investment in manufacturing capacity in the United States, but it's, but it's not a country like, you know, South Africa or Brazil or some country that still has a huge threshold of development it can still push through that could be the basis for, um, you know, a whole new round or new generation of um, capitalist development. Right. And so that's also a part of the story, too, of a kind of a deadlock between China and the United States. This, this chapter is pretty technical, right? And I think, you know, as financial and uh, economic historians – they, they don't shy away from using technical language. And I think, you know, th- their focus isn't on international relations, but I think this, ha- this all has, you know, for this project that we're working on, a lot of implications for international relations theory. Um, and I wanted to ask you to share some thoughts on that. You know, as you've been reading this again, what, what has occurred to you or what do you feel you're learning um, anew in, in IR theory? Well, there's just the first is the, you know, the rubric of the current account and financial account as a way of thinking about how flows of goods and services and obviously um, financial claims shape the relationships between nations. It's obviously important, um, but also the sort of strate- at the strategic level, how um, those relationships um, can help countries take, for example, China can serve as the basis of Although, gen- although generating these imbalances within its country of this sort of high savings model, put it on the basis of attaining the manufacturing, industrial, and technological pe- capacity to become a player in the field or become a player amongst um, the great powers. And despite you know the problems that are happening now and despite the fact that we're facing a world in which a new Cold War seems to be emerging, in which relations and de-globalization and a decoupling between the United States and China seems like it's going to happen, even if we're unclear in exactly what ways. China seems to have used this period to create the conditions for them to have the industrial and technological ecosystem to do it all themselves or to do it apart from the West going forward. I think that, um, you know, thinking about how this, the current account and financial account you know, have kept U.S. and China in this cold embrace is absolutely, you know, sort of crucial to um, understand what the, the shape of relations to come. Also, 
I think that this you know development model idea of, of a kind of high savings trade surplus model that China's pursued is absolutely necessary to understand the the conditions and kind of contours of economic inequality in China itself. And so it's it's a very important part of thinking about the this sort of bugbear question among socialists and Marxists of whether or not China is capitalist or socialist, but it, it gives you a way of thinking about it in the larger sort of strategic realm of like, what, well, it, is this a communist party that realizes that, you know, some people have to become rich first, but it pursues it on a developmental path that puts China in a position in a relatively, you know, um, um, combative world capitalist system that serves it better in the longer term than it would if it had, than it would if it had um, f- followed a more egalitarian course earlier on. And so during this process now, as it, as it tries to move to a dual, this idea of dual circulation, which we'll, we'll talk about later, there's a whole strategic aspect to the way they've um, created these conditions of inequality that, if, as we'll see, maybe they can make, a, make sufficient changes to, um, you know, set the ship of state aright in a more egalitarian direction. Yeah, I think that's all well said. And, and as you were speaking, it reminded me of one aspect of the book that I'm critical of um, and, and really bugged me as I was reading it. And it's something I've mentioned at the, at, at the top of our discussion, um, which is the tendency to speak about China as though it's, um, you know, it's, it's victimizing the U.S. in some sense in that it has weaponized trade imbalances to beggar thy neighbor. It has, it has weaponized its surplus. This is their take. I'm not saying this is mine. It's what I'm critical of. That they've weaponized the surplus at the detriment of American manufacturing, as though it was some kind of, um, you know, is by, you know, somewhat uh, uh, malicious Chinese intent to create this system um, by with, you know, by keeping wages low, by devaluing its currency to to really give it a leg up on the United States and its manufacturing economic capabilities. And I don't think that's Really, I mean, I, I I feel like that's the picture they're creating, and I think it's wrong. Um, I I wonder if if you share this kind of discomfort with the way they they talk about China and this tendency to to place blame in some sense on China for creating um, the shock to the world that they they that is a recurring theme throughout the book. Uh, no, not really, because I, I do I, for a couple of reasons. One is um, kind of who cares <laughs> because uh, you know um, the. Maybe they they had a more realist idea of what was going to come eventually, and yeah. they thought let's you know take advantage of American elites who don't give you know a damn and, <laughs> right. and, and 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 pull the rug out from under them. But also, I do think that degree of of inequality and this sort of um, low consumption level of Chinese households is a big part of why there was a glut in America of Chinese products and helps explain it. I mean, the degree to which yeah. it's nefarious or whether it's, I mean, the, the stuff is very, it's not all just one central command center, right? It's, it's you know, huge numbers of people pursuing GDP goal, GDP goals or targets in, in China that has, you know, the dramatic benefit of increasing the overall, you know, quality of life or living standard in China. That's hard to, to disentangle oneself from because it's the developmental model they've been pursuing and has been so successful 
you know, until the early 2000s or until at least 2008, probably, and takes a few years to, to change course. I mean, America doesn't seem to be able to change, change its course, no matter how bad it, rec- or no matter how much it recognizes bad economic trends. And so I think, yeah, China is starting to make some changes, but, um, those, what its path beforehand, you know, was, um, contributing to, contributed to these imbalances. I'm going to just chalk my question up to a, a test of your, your, uh, commitment to realism and, 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 uh, I gotta say, I commend you for, for not looking at intentions, but cold, hard facts. So, so good job. You passed the test. Um, so, you know, wh- while we're on this topic, I mean, there's, there's a lot more to be said on the, um, high savings versus high consumption model or high wages model. Um, they, they speak at length about Germany. I, I don't really want to spend too much time on Germany. I want to get into China because I think it's, uh, for us, the more interesting story um, as the exemplar, I would say, of the high savings development model. Um, and and it's it's very topical right now. I mean, of stuff we've been, on stuff we've been reading, Isabella Weber's book mm-hmm. on how China avoided shock therapy. But do, 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 would you like to go into sort of the, the narrative, the story of how China has gotten itself in into this... Um, you know, the, the position that they describe China as being in, which is, uh, you know, the, the, the nation driving trade imbalances throughout the system. Yeah, I mean, um, you could say basically the, the high savings model is one in which consumption is squeezed to pay for productive investment and in infrastructure and, and capital goods, you know, com- um, factories and, you know, fixed capital investments. And when it's done correctly, it um, raises everybody's standard of living even if the per- the portion of you know the economy taken up by household income is small it's still it can still you know because it's so um, it promotes productivity growth so much it can um, basically raise the standard of living of the whole of the whole society absolutely, and absolutely. in the context of China, where, as everyone knows, there's been this huge amount of infrastructure investment in especially a kind of doubling down on that after 2008, the 2008 financial crisis. Things like that still, you know, basically increase the living standard of everybody, even if it's there's a smaller a small proportion of the going, overall output. Yeah. Going to the house, going to households. Yeah. Even if, even if it's a smaller proportion going to households, it's still in creating better economic conditions. Yeah, that's a, that's a nice way to put it. I mean, the other the, the the found you know the an essential part of this argument is uh, which I don't think they dwell on quite as much as they should is this shift from the countryside to the city and the standard of living that isn't that is really uh, improved qualitatively for people who are migrants from uh, underdeveloped countryside areas to major urban centers, which are you know exploding uh, in size year over year throughout China. So I, I think this is, you know, I think you've put that in really stark terms. Yeah. And so another way to, you know, of course, think about this, too, is just, you know, for listeners, the easy way to follow it is China, high savings rate, that creates conditions of trade surplus, right? Yeah. Because you have fewer people or few, a smaller consumer base in your own country or in China to um, purchase goods that are being made all the, all the more productively, right? And so then those become more competitive in other countries. And then the United States has a high wage model. That means trade deficits based, based on um, raised demand above the you know, existing productive capacity in the country, i.e. that you know, 
we buy more things and we produce, right? Yeah. Um, and if you just think in terms of the relative value of currencies, we can talk about how this is actually commanded by the, the Chinese bureaucracy, but the dollar is stronger against the yuan, which allows Americans to buy a larger uh, share of goods from China. The, the yuan being lower in value, uh, it being controlled, you know, its, it's, it's, its value being lower than the dollar makes it a compelling buy for international markets. And, and China has wisely devalued its currency against the dollar and in doing so, keeping itself competitive on the world market, much to its, um, much to its benefit. Yeah. And much to the chagrin of American politicians. I mean, basically my entire life, my entire adult life, I've been hearing politicians complain about, um, China's, um, low exchange rate. I think they had it pegged to the dollar, um, you know, stably until 2005. And now they've done different sort of sort of machinations in order to keep it um, to keep it low. Yeah, and it's not all good. I mean, yeah, I don't I shouldn't exaggerate and say it's, you know, this is this is, you know, we should be uncritical of that in, in this and and we should we should, I mean, with Pettis and Klein, um, you know, we would share their uh, point of view on raising the consum- uh, the the capacity for consumption among the working class in China, including some of their, you know, programmatic aims, which would be ending the hukou system for one, and also for stronger union rights throughout uh, mm-hmm. China in protection of, of workers' wages and, and rights, etc. I mean, I think you have to be careful in the way you pose those kinds of questions. You know, you, you can quickly slip over to the line of something like an umbrella movement style, like, you know, democracy in China, which would just be you know, the United States running roughshod over the over the nation. But I think in principle, we shouldn't be uncritical of the high savings model, despite the fact that it has been a protective measure for China in its growing rivalry with the United States. Yes, but we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves because we should at least nail down um, the definitions of current account and financial account, balance of payments and this, the, you could say the general rubric or general, um, you know, conceptual orientation of Pettis and Klein, and then, um, you know, use that to better understand the, the nature of the imbalances between China and the U.S., which, you know, we, we, we sort of described as these two development, but developmental models. So first all right, of all, on. I'm going to, I'm going to take a nap while you do this. Yeah, it is boring. This is not make good radio. <laughs> it does not make a good radio. <laughs> um, so first is the current account, which is you could say the um, the the difference um, going inside or outside of a country um, in the trade in goods and services. Also comprises investment income and transfers of wealth or remittances that would say leave a country. So Mexican immigrants in the United States who send their money back home—that's a negative on the current account. For 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 the family member, yeah, for the United States. And so, um, if you have a a current account deficit, you know that that it's not entirely all bad. But when you the uh, more the more that increases, the less sustainable that is in the long run. So you have to ask the question: How does a country sustain this? Um, So if money is leaving the country through international transaction, then entering it, how does that sustain? So that means a country is owing the rest of the world and that money has to come from somewhere. You can't buy goods from the rest of the world forever. So right. that somewhere comes from surpluses in the financial account. Ah, so the f- these things have to balance each other, in other words. Exactly. And so the financial account is comprised of 
you know, financial assets, bonds, um, shares, derivatives, um, um, foreign direct investment. So when the United States invests in China, that's a credit for China's financial account. Um, If a German company invests here, that's credit to the U.S. and a a debit against Germany's um, financial account. Um, And also reserves of currencies um, also count as a financial account. Um, so it's basically, you know, in order for a deficit to be sustained, it has to be balanced with a financial flow from outside of the country, right? And so they use this basic rubric to give a kind of bigger picture of not just bilateral trade relations, but the, looking at any particular country, but in, in the case of this book, the United States and China in particular, and Germany too, they look, they use this rubric to understand the trade relations of that country, the conditions of its trade, and also apply that to its developmental model and how that's been affected by the degrees of inequality or transfers of wealth between labor and capital in different countries. And so right. their, their, their account is not just this sort of, you know, um, national balance of payments, you know, um, developmental model account. It's also one about understanding how inequality shapes or um, modulates the interstate system too. And, and shapes the, the trade relations between nations. Now, now, one important point that we, sh- we should just make very clear is that the current account and the financial account must balance. If you have a positive on the current account, right. you have to have a negative in the financial account. And to make that a little clearer, because it's relevant to what, what, what we're going to talk about with China's development model and its, and its impact in the United States, is that when we talk about the United States having a deficit with respect to China, that means we're buying more of China's goods mm-hmm. than they're buying of ours. So this deficit in the current account for the United States has to have a representation in the positive in its financial account. And if you're talking about just Chinese-U.S. relationships, the way that gets represented is by Chinese investment in um, debt, American right. debt, essentially. So bills, bonds, and and... Um, and, and financial assets and the stock market. Although, as we'll discuss, stuff, yeah. as we'll discuss later, Chinese have serious capital controls, so that they're basically so that the wealthy in China can't move their money out and just invest it, you know, on mass into the American stock market. But a huge, you know, avenue of um, Chinese financial investment, especially by the People's Bank of China, has been the purchase of T bills. Now, what that does is it, that basically allows the United States to borrow. And continue to um, fund not only um, you know the services and bill of the United S- of the state of the of America, the actual you know state itself and state services, um, but also more private debts as well. Insofar as that those um, that transfer um, goes into the stock market and fuels um, stock market activity. Yeah, yeah, asset bubbles. And one thing that Victor Xi in his interview with the New Left Review a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. mentioned was that this you know this this investment from China in financial instruments in the US is far above uh, at least at that time maybe 2019 we can probably still talk about it in these terms but far above the demand for for lending in the US and what that has enabled uh, American banks to do is lend out at extremely low interest rates and if you talk to you know you know, our age, if we talk to people, you know, looking at mortgages, for example, uh, you know, comparing now and 
you know, 30 years ago, your, your parents or the grandparents might be shocked by the interest rates that you're paying on a mortgage now. I mean, you can just lend out at, at near zero cost because of the demand in part being raised by these financial instruments being uh, financialized by the surpluses being run uh, from China towards the U.S. So I, I, there are just a number of really interesting real world impactful things on your day to day that come out of this, uh, this reality. Was that enough on your boring financial account, current account stuff? Um, well, then there's just one it's, more. It's thing. really not. It's not. It's not that boring. I'm just giving you a hard time. No, 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 it's, no, it's, it's interesting. No, it is interesting. It's but um, as you know, um, our listeners might know, we're a. Uh, it's a bit of a struggle for us poet Marxists to 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 not just not necessarily to wrap our heads around any you know one or one paragraph or two <laughs> of this book, but to to be able to 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 recapitulate and reconstruct it and stuff sometimes is, is hard. Um, yeah, but so where, hopefully, where, hopefully people aren't starting with this episode. Yeah, but so where this goes is, you know, um, the end of the chapter, a kind of an account of what when is an imbalance good and when is it bad? Um, and they say that, you know, a good example is when richer countries um, make investments in poorer ones that have lots of potential. So if it's something closer to that second model um, or a second, you know, kind of idea of the role of finance in um, structuring trade, right? That it just goes to places where there's a high possibility of a rate of return. Um, but it's bad when surplus countries lend to mature deficit countries that lack useful projects that in need of funding, which only creates more debt booms. Now, this is exactly the way you could describe the United States, right? A, a mature deficit country that lacks useful projects and creates debt booms. It's a perfect example of what the United States was, well, this is now and was leading up to 2008. Stupid question of the night. Um, if we compare the relationship between the financial surplus in the United States driven by Chinese surpluses today, compare that to the financial surplus in the United States being funded by the British in the 1830s, First of all, the in the 1830s, right, the United States was able to use that to its benefit because there were high profitable, high value investments that could be used with that funding, right, that financial outflow. The Correct. difference with today is that we're kind of capped out, right? We've we've reached the optimal limit of the investment opportunity. Is yeah, that, and is that is that a fair way of of thinking about this? And I why think that's a fair be? way of saying it, and and it's a part of the general kind of conditions of the. I don't know the contradictions or the some of the conundrums of like the era of globalization we live under now. I mean, we are a country, a mature capitalist country that's you know that requires so much more higher levels of investment in order to get total factor productivity to increase. I mean, it's it's been going down. That is the combination of payment for workers and you know machinery and capital in order to get. A, a growth of productivity. You need to put so much more money in than um, you need to in a country that's still developing. And so right. a higher rate of return is going to come in countries that aren't, that don't already have the level of capitalist development where we already, we've already attained. Well, short of a, a socialist revolution that would, you know, produce for the sake of use rather than purely exchange and profit there 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 is a they offer a solution i mean within at least in their minds within capitalism that um 
that would be mutually beneficial for China and the U.S. I mean, again, limiting our discussion to the two nations. There, there has to be some investment to raise the standard of living in the U.S., um, although it's, it's, it's a higher bar given the, the development of capitalism and industrial capacity in the U.S. But what is their solution? If there are no good investment opportunities in the U.S. or too difficult of an investment opportunity in the U.S., what is the solution? It's a good question. Paying workers more, creating conditions, they, they think more than anything, creating conditions in China in which more of consumer demand sops up goods produced in China, which would create conditions that make American goods more in greater demand in the United States. That's one of the ideas. I mean, I think they also entertain a notion of, um, like many other internationally minded social democrats, of a global tax rate, right? Yeah, I'm leading the witness a little bit because I'm trying to set up the critique we'll come to at the end. But just hold that in mind. I mean, yeah. that really is their solution. And they, they come back to this time and time again, uh, mostly in Germany and, and China, which is pay workers more, right? I mean, it it's, sounds great. I think it's, uh, you know, the prospects of that I, I don't think are phenomenal. But the, mm -hmm. their idea is that if you create uh, higher potential for consumption, but with through higher wages in China, and Germany, for example, and these surplus nations, current account surplus nations, you would have a higher demand for the the production of goods in that country, and there would not be this beggar thy neighbor kind of surplus or glut dumped upon the rest of the world, creating yeah. these shocks and speculative bubbles that we've been discussing the whole episode. So we want to keep that in mind because as we move into the history of China's development model in four stages, uh, that's chapter four will come to their solution, which they really hit the, the reader over the head with. And, and then we'll talk about the critique, uh, centrally using uh, Bananov, uh, Aaron Bananov's article, uh, World Asymmetries from New Left Review, as I, I think one of the best critiques of this book that's, that's out there. Okay, so I think that's probably where we'll, we'll end it tonight. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of food for thought there. And we want to hear from our listeners, um, as, as Mario said, for some, uh, you know, what would you call us poet Marxist? This material can be can be challenging to say the least. But we've come back to this book several times, and I, I think it's starting to click. Um, if nothing else, we really wanted to share how in how important some of these concepts are in the world of IR theory. So if you walk away from this thinking, okay, this is interesting, it's something I want to dig into, you should definitely read chapters two and three from this book. Um, and prior to the next discussion, uh, we'd also recommend you read chapter four. At least scan it. Or listen to Alpha Bunga Bunga Cast's um, interview with Isabella Weber on how China avoided shock therapy, mm -hmm. um, unlike some other um, commu formerly communist nations. Um, we'll be talking about some of the historical background that informs, uh, or at least is a dialogue with that book, but is also an economic history of how China has found itself in the economic circumstances that it is today of running a high surplus uh, with with the United States and what the the import of that is in the interstate order. So we really appreciate you bearing with us as we get through this. Um, and, and I just also want to tease one last thing. We'll be releasing chapter the discussion on Chapter 4 in the next two weeks. And then after that, we have a nice surprise for listeners. Um, I won't say what it is, but I will say you should read a book called The Paranoid Style in American Diplomacy by Brandon Wolf Honeycutt. Um, and I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. Mario, I don't know if you want to say anything else about that little tease for the, the, the next, the coming episodes, but I, I should say, be very excited. 
Yes, be very excited. We're going to do something a little different with this book than we did with others, but it's a it represents, I guess, our for, our first foray into um, um, Middle Eastern politics, and it's a book basically about the constant, the sort of early Cold War um, construction of a strategy, not only for um, combating socialism and nationalism and combating Arab nationalism in the Middle East, but also um, the politics of oil and how that affected the strategic orientation of economic interests, all economic interests in America, but also how the United States tried to lead the whole capitalist world system. So it's going to be a kind of a slight return to our foundations in, you know, sort of realist IR theory and the, and it's, and it's, um, use and understanding the Cold War, Cold War strategy. And hopefully that can get us talking about more contemporary um, uh, issues in the Middle East. Man, makes me want to make a shameless plug for the uh, Perry Anderson episodes we did. Sounds yeah, highly and, relevant. And the uh, and the Christopher Lane, too. I mean, it's, it's a return, yeah, no to, return to basics for us in some ways. Jakarta Method as well. I mean, he talks about the Jakarta Method in the book. Just shameless plug for all our episodes. Yeah, just go back to the first exactly. one. Exactly. All right. Well, Mario, it's been a pleasure. Um, you know, thank you so As much always. for working through some of this material with me. And, and uh, yeah, great discussion. Thank you. And I hope you edit this well and so I don't sound too stupid. <laughs> All right, man. Uh, thanks for listening. All right, cool.